go live. Okay, I think we're live. We should be. And uh, uh, welcome to the second uh, episode of um, the DevOps Speak Easy podcast. Uh, and uh, for the second episode, we have a great guest here, uh, Rosemary uh, Wang, uh, developer advocate with uh, uh, HashiCorp. Is I, I, all the time I say HashiConf instead of HashiCorp, so I need to be very careful. With it's okay. Hash- with HashiCorp um, is with us here. Um, Rosemary, welcome, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's pretty and nice to co-host... speak to people. Yeah. Oh, yeah. My uh, um, co-host, Cad uh, Cosgrove, is here with me as well. Hello, everybody. And uh, yeah, so as you already figured out, if you watched our first episode, we are uh, live on uh, JFrog uh, YouTube account, and uh, you can watch us there and talk to us there. And obviously also on Twitter at JFrog and at DevOps Speak Easy. Um, so we try to make it as interactive as possible because as Rosemary mentioned, we miss people. We do. We do. It's lonely, y'all. We're all star, especially developer advocates because we're so used to like being around people all the time and talking to people and engaging as part of our jobs. Check on your extroverted friends. They're they're not okay. <laughs> yes. Uh, all right, Rosemary, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I've been with HashiCorp for the past year, except I was using HashiCorp tools before that. I had the illustrious role of being a DevOps engineer for a good mm-hmm. amount of time. Right, but I still don't actually know what that means. Fun fact. So tackles are already up. He's mad. I know. I know. Uh, I don't actually remember really what the definition was at the time. I remember being very confused. I remember doing a lot of different things, wearing a lot of different hats, and then over time, I started doing more public cloud automation, public cloud work, applying infrastructure as code principles to delivering a lot of interesting things. Um, and so I kind of traversed my way from DevOps engineer to a consultant and now to a developer advocate. That's cool. Um, so uh, Hashi, uh, HashiCorp, <laughs> um, we, I, I guess everybody know what, what they're about. It's like Terraform and Vault and uh, you know what, going back, how old I am, uh, Vagrant. Um, what what is what is this company about? What's their mission? What's the focus? What what are we talking about? Yeah, so a lot of the tools in the Hashi stack were really focused on data center automation and solving problems that developers or engineers had with data centers in particular. So when it started with Vagrant, it was like, oh well. Development machines weren't consistent. They weren't easy to come by. Um, For me personally, when I was working on testing network switches, for example, I would use Vagrant to spin up a virtual switch and run tests on it, which was a lot easier than finding an appliance somewhere, wherever anybody could find a switch. Um, And so HashiCorp has this tool set, first and foremost, open source. Um, But the second piece is focused on automating the data center, um, and operating, uh, operating in a sense that uh, gives people the ease of use um, and sort of lowers the barrier to entry to get started. 
we in JFrog we used Vagrant back in 2012. Oh. Uh, yeah. And, oh, you uh, don't know what the IoT team was doing then, because we were using we were leaning on Vagrant pretty heavily when I was an engineer on the IoT team because we weren't uh, we didn't have Linux machines for our uh, like actual development boxes, so we were using Vagrant for that. That's really cool. Great and do you tool. still use it for IoT, or is it it's not as uh, frequent now? Uh, I'm not an engineer on that team anymore. Um, I'm a developer advocate here now. But uh, if I was doing that kind of development again, and I didn't have access to an actual like Linux desktop, then yeah, I would still just use Vagrant. I think. I I would say that Docker pretty much <laughs> killed Vagrant, didn't it? That's kinda. just really funny, kinda. Yeah. Right, because because that's that that's the whole idea of Docker, right? You have your development machine, you just you just ship it to production, so you don't really need. Um, and and now when Docker works with every operating system, it's kind of Vagrant is 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 redundant. But I love how Hashi kind of reinvented um, itself and and came up with a, another with another product, not less but even more popular. And I'm obviously talking about Terraform. What's what's Terraform niche and and how it managed to escape the fate of Vagrant, v, v, VMware, and and everybody else who got disrupted by Docker? That's a good question. I think that Terraform itself was built to extend to other providers and other different kinds of infrastructure. I think that Vagrant ha still has its place. A lot of people still use it, um, but it's for really specific things that they're looking for in the virtual machine space, right? With Terraform, the way that the project grew was that people wanted it to see it for Oracle. They wanted to see it for JFrog even. They wanted to see it maybe for um, even blogs or Google Translate. So people just really wanted to use the same patterns, which very simple pattern, plan and apply to a lot of different things. And it organically grew beyond the main cloud providers, beyond even a data center. Um, it's pretty cool. I think someone even wrote, someone from the Google team wrote a pizza provider so you could order Domino's pizza. These I love it. Good. I love let's, it. Let's pause for, for a bit and go back uh, and talk about what is Terraform for people who are uh, maybe maybe not, not very familiar with that. But, what is it? Why? What is it for? What is it? Why would one use Terraform? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, if anybody's ever seen like the purple logo with the T with the blocks, um, that's the that's the Terraform symbol. Um, and basically, it's a way for you to declare what your infrastructure configuration should be, uh, and then it's an engine that applies it. Uh, and it, it it's more complicated than that in that the logic itself under the hood is tested by a bunch of other people. So for, you know, a really good example of this are the cloud providers. So, you know, how many of us remember how to unlink an elastic IP address from a Kubernetes cluster from something else? I mean, that order of operations isn't easy, isn't that easy to remember. So Terraform has all of those dependencies mapped out. It has the ability to capture that logic and make the changes for you. So you don't have to think about that logic. So there's a lot of different pieces to it, but the primary interface is that you get to see the changes, you get to prevent whether or not those changes go to production, and then you can apply them uh, and it handles all that logic. 
So that's uh, infrastructure as uh, um, as code as as discrete. What is it? Uh, declarative yeah. infrastructure. Yeah, I mean, people have a lot of different opinions on this. <laughs> um, so let's hear it from yeah. let's hear it from the you know the the, the yeah, biggest yeah. Uh, the the single source of truth. Yeah. The, oh no, no, it never. No? And that's that's the funniest part. <laughs> What do you mean? Even even inside Hashi, you have different opinions on how to position tools like Terraform. Well, you know, we I think positioning Terraform is pretty straightforward, right? In the problem that it's it's trying to solve, but in terms of the 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 semantics, right, of calling it infrastructure as code versus infrastructure as configuration versus a lot of people actually, and not necessarily within HashiCorp, but even within the community who loves and uses Terraform. Their argument is that maybe it's not fully infrastructure's code because infrastructure's code should be one of the programming languages. Um, mm -hmm. Terraform uses a, a HashiCorp configuration language, and it's a it's basically its own domain-specific language. Mm -hmm. And the reason why it's like that is to help people who don't know how to code get started, right? To be comfortable automating and be comfortable with patterns. Um, but there are a lot of people within the community that actually enjoy using a programming interface. They want to use Python. They want to use Java. They want to use C Sharp. And in that regard, they consider maybe that as infrastructure as code and Terraform as infrastructure as configuration. While other people, a good number of people, claim Terraform is infrastructure as code. But differences of, of opinion. Hmm. I, uh, I've never actually used Terraform, so uh, this is this is useful information for me. I don't, uh, I didn't know exactly uh, what it did. Okay, but so let's let's try to map it. Let's yeah. try to map it for for someone who who never right. used it. Okay, yeah. so I'm an engineer. Uh, mm -hmm. I am the kind of engineer who will spend a load of time uh, at the very beginning. Uh, automating as much of my process as possible so that I don't have to touch this stuff later. Uh, I'm also uh, primarily a Python engineer and I really love Python. Like I enjoy an opportunity to write Python. It's not a chore for me. So if this is something that I can write code to automate more of my infrastructure, that is the thing I would like to use because I am lazy, but I'm lazy for uh, tomorrow cat. Today cat is uh, very driven to make sure that tomorrow cat can be lazy. Does this get me that? Yeah, so it partly gets you that. Um, you'll still have to write Python code to right. translate exactly. it to JSON, for example. Love to do um, that. Yeah, exactly. So you still, you can use Python templating, you know, Jinja templating to Thanks. still accomplish Terraform configuration and Terraform then handles all the plans and applies. Um, so from like an interface standpoint, maybe your interface changes, you can still use a programming language to render it out. Um, but from the logic, the deeper logic underneath it, basically if, I think I always come back to this idea of the Kubernetes because I've been doing it a lot lately, but um, when you automate a cluster, yeah. When you automate the cluster, maybe you have a lot of things that you need for it. So networking, you need the cluster itself. You maybe need DNS. Um, and so you can still declare with Python to render out to that configuration. I need a cluster. I need DNS and I need network. And Terraform will be able to say, oh, network is first. 
then I'll create the cluster and then I'll create DNS and maybe link that for you. So it'll, it will handle some of those order of operations. So today cat can be pretty, you know, today cat, you know, expends some extra energy figuring out how to template it out to JSON, but tomorrow cat can just run that Python script over and over and over and, and declare that, you know, tomorrow cat wants a, a Kubernetes cluster with a network and a DNS and they get that ad infinitum. Tomorrow cat will appreciate that because she yeah. doesn't like having to remember which order those things go in. No, I don't even remember them. And I hate, I hate to sit oh. there and I like linking everything up. And then I remember before Terraform, um, I was playing with AWS when I was first learning AWS cloud, I was creating, um, VMs to host Cloud Foundry, et cetera. There were a lot of tools involved. And I remember getting the cloud bill back and it was like $200. And I was oh, like, no. but I, I thought I deleted everything. I didn't. You did not. You did not. No, I've done that before too. Uh, it was like a, some side project that I spun up with like, uh, like CodeStar or something. And I thought I had torn it down, but like I left Beanstalk up or something. And... It wasn't $200, but it was like $80. And it's not a good fit. I think everybody does that at least once, right? Yeah. Every, everybody's left some, some shit running on AWS. Yeah, I, I think, I think uh, at least Amazon are, are quite forgiving for, for this type of mistakes. And we, you, can, you can write to their support and say, hey, look, I left it on by mistake. You've seen I didn't touch it. And, and then they just, I think, forgive the... Yeah, they but, do. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind like of a tip that, that if you did that, just don't go ahead and pay it, but try to reason with Amazon support that you might get some of it um, slashed. Uh, but yeah, no, but it's not a it's not a good way of operating, forgetting stuff and then begging uh, begging the provider to forgive you. Um, so and and another thing is it actually because those templates are unified you can get, or universal, you can get the same behavior on different uh, providers of the infrastructure using the same uh, Terraform uh, templates. And that's where, that's where the question actually um, comes in uh, the most, right? Everybody's like, oh, so that means Terraform gives me a common data model across multiple cloud providers. The answer is no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the answer is sorry, no. Um, and it's a couple of reasons, right? Un under the hood, if we actually look at all of the internals, um, what happens is that per provide per cloud provider, it's different code. What it's doing is referencing the cloud provider's API usually. Mm -hmm. Um, and when the API does not have a common data model with the other APIs, it's really hard to basically create something that's giving a common model, right? So just because you say a load balancer in AWS um, doesn't mean that it means it's a load balancer equivalent in Azure. You have to write the similar configuration for Azure with Azure parameters and Azure requirements. Um, but the reason why people enjoy it is that they can at the very least, you know, have a similar common syntax or language or approach to how they configure the uh, resources, right? So you can say, here's an Azure load balancer, here's an AWS load balancer, um, and you can create them side by side. Okay. Well, that's still pretty low effort. Yeah. Uh, well, yes, but I wonder if there is no 
like minimal common level of denominator for, for all of them in the end of the day, especially when we are talking about more or less standardized things like Kubernetes, which is pretty much the same for, for every cloud. Is there any way for me to benefit from Terraform when I try to create my multi-cloud strategy? Yeah, I think that the best way to express the benefits you know, with Terraform applied as applied to multi-cloud in particular, um, is that, you know, all of them have at least consistency in uh, documentation. All of them have consistency in the actual domain-specific language. So mm-hmm. if you understand that the parameters for an AWS load balancer are specific to AWS, you're able to sort of glance at the Azure Terraform documentation and maybe say, these are the rough equivalents in Azure. Um, and for those who might be doing Kubernetes, it's even actually easier. Um, what's really cool is that, you know, maybe you create a Kubernetes cluster in Google and then you create a Kubernetes cluster on, uh, you know, Azure, for example. Um, as, that- long, mm-hmm, as long as you are able to create both of them, you know, maybe they have different specifications, different versions, different node pool configurations. Um, at the end of the day, to deploy the application, you can still pull those same outputs, right? So you'll still always get a Kubernetes cluster certificate. You'll still always get a Kubernetes, uh, you know, host endpoint. You'll still get a Kubernetes master authentication configuration somewhat, um, whether or not you've configured usernames or passwords. So you still have that Kubernetes as a contract is still kind of there, um, yeah. which makes it easier. That sounds really neat. Uh, I'm going to mess with that after this podcast because that sounds really fun. Sounds, um, I, I really like getting into the weeds on configuration stuff like that. It's fun for me, uh, especially if you have good documentation. Do you have good documentation? Yeah, I'm actually yeah. pretty happy. Yeah, like with, I'm surprised. The documentation for Terraform is really well maintained, which I'm very surprised about at times because <laughs> it could be a lot of providers. It's like 200 of them. So outside of like AWS, Google, and Azure, you know, there are a lot of other providers and they all have their resources documented. It's pretty cool. Interesting. And there, what I wanted to talk about is a little bit about um, relationship between JFrog and, and, and Terraform. And that's interesting because we have a lot of points to uh, of, of interaction. First of all, is like, for example, JFrog Artifactory one of the resources that can be configured with Terraform? I have to actually look that up because uh, there, unless you, I think that might be a leading question, in which case it might be yes. Uh, yes. It yeah, was a leading question and the answer is yes. All right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right. And, and, can't have all of them memorized. Yeah. Uh, well, well, but at least the important ones, JFrog Artifactory. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> the, <laughs> so, um, okay. Uh, what what other type of infrastructure can we can we automate using using Terraform? Uh, setting up using Terraform. What else is kind of people people usually do? So we spoke about obviously Kubernetes cluster. Um, what else? What else is kind of used? So used? 
Yeah, there are a number of um, observability tools that allow you to configure them uh, with uh, Terraform, for example. So New Relic, Datadog, and repository, various you know version control systems. So GitHub, GitLab. Uh, there's also there are also some other ones like even One Password. A community member actually developed a One Password um, mm-hmm. provider, so you can configure your own One Password with Terraform. And there are also the providers for each and every one of the HashiCorp tools, including console and vault. Um, that I've developed a provider for blogs, for example, for like publishing blogs to Medium. Um, oh. Currently, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And, and it's a way to just sort of have immutable blogs. I write them in Markdown and then I have Terraform plan and apply and it uh, applies it to Medium as a draft, for example. Um, you can also do it with Google Translate, which I also wrote just as an as a example. Um, so, yeah, there are a lot of different ways that you could use Terraform out, even outside of infrastructure configuration. Interesting. Very cool. And, and those pieces of configuration, what, what artifacts they, they end up uh, in? I mean, what, how do I share those? So you, you, you wrote... Um, something for uh, for posting blog posts on Medium. I want to use it. How do how do we reuse? Yeah. So every provider. So there's a plugin SDK, and the SDK helps facilitate development of providers. And, and providers are what are really valuable in Terraform. Um, if you just use Terraform by itself without downloading any of the plugins, uh, like AWS, Google, Kubernetes, JFrog, even it's really not that much that there's not much you can do with it. I hate to say Mm -hmm. it, but there's not that much you can do with just, you know, the engine itself. Um, So the reason why it leads up to this is that Terraform core, when you go to HashiCorp and you download Terraform, that's a gRPC client. Um, Mm And when you install that, it's ready to consume protocols from a gRPC server. And the plugins are the gRPC server. So they themselves are actually binaries. They're artifacts that you can put on, you know, an artifact repository, you know, or even in JFrog. Um, you can put them in Git. You can put them anywhere you want to. The idea is that you can distribute them and you reuse them. All that logic is bundled into this binary. Yeah. And so when we're talking about sharing those, uh, this is what is called like a Terraform module. And it's served from Terraform registry. Do I use the terminology correctly? Yeah, that is where this is confusing. <laughs> there are a couple of components in Terraform that go into a registry. Uh-huh. Um, and so it, there's two things that you can actually host, uh, two subsets of things. The first thing is a provider. So a provider is that binary. It contains the logic for orchestration against uh, some API somewhere, a target API. Mm-hmm. Then there's the modules themselves, which you brought up. Modules are actually bundles of Terraform configuration. So let's mm-hmm. say, you know, I wanted to create a GitHub organization uh, and I want a standard template for how to do it every time. So I take that, I put it into a bundle, which is a module, and I can distribute that to someone else to create new Terraform configurations and create their own GitHub organizations based on the subset of Terraform files. So providers are, let's say, Golang compiled binaries, while mm-hmm. the modules themselves are Terraform configuration files. 
So, okay. So, and, and providers are just shared like by using like a normal, any mean of sharing HTTP server, Jvgrid factory generic repository, or just place that you can get them from while modules have a requirement for an API and registry and all this stuff. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. That's, I, I got confused by that, but no, it is that. very confusing because actually I think it's all one registry now, what they, they call it under a registry now. So provider uh-huh. registry and module registry are all funneled into one general registry. And yep. everything. There. And, and from what I know, uh, Terraform registry implementation is on our uh, roadmap as well. So mm-hmm. Uh, I hope who, soon Artifactory will be able to uh, serve as Terraform registry as well, serving modules because providers can be just shared now for yeah. a generic repository. Yeah. There is nothing but I think it is important though, right? JFrog is, you know, when I used it, it was for, let's say, managed RPMs, right? So one of the big pieces was like, if you're in an environment, highly regulated, air-gapped, you're only allowing secure packages that have been pre-scanned uh, and hosted in a, you know, hosted and vetted, right? Um, you would put it somewhere and you would make sure that no one is using the publicly available, uh, you know, binaries or RPMs. It's the same concept with Terraform providers, for example. You may mm-hmm. not, you may not, you know, want to use the publicly available latest Absolutely. bleeding edge version of a provider. You might yep. want to scan it first. Right, right, absolutely. That makes the yeah. that's that's the reason why we do what we do, and that's the reason why Jeffrey Factory exists among others. So yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Having all your dependencies in one place, one centralized repository that you control is is uh, highly important. And uh, I know that a lot of people are waiting for for us to implement the Terraform registry APIs. And I hope that will be done um, soon and uh, we will be able to add this to the list of whatever 20, 30 package types that, that we it's have. 28 now? 28, right? I think everybody counted differently because what you need to do in order to know exactly is to do a joint set between those which is available as local uh, repositories, remote yeah. repositories and virtual repositories yeah. because they are not all the same. Right, so, and then generic count. But it's a lot. Generic? I would count mm-hmm. generic, I think. The generic repo type. Do we count that as one of the... Yeah, yeah, repos? of course we count it. Obviously we count it, yeah. Hmm. Right. <laughs> so, so there's yeah. disagreement at JFrog about what, how many artifact repository types we support and HashiCorp can't agree on uh, whether Terraform yeah. is infrastructure as code or not. No, no. <laughs> okay, okay. So let's let's switch gears to to other stuff that that Hashi does, uh, which is which is not necessarily Terraform. I think Terraform is the most popular tool uh, at the moment. So this is kind of we started with that. But I think that the second big huge highlight for Hashi is the Vault. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. And that's because it solves a very very common and very powerful problem of storing secrets yes it does this is this is all yours this is all security this is what you're passionate (laughs) about let's talk about the high uh, high uh, um, hard coding uh, passwords and committing them to git 
no, we're not going to talk about doing that because that's a thing. <laughs> so uh, we might have a bunch of people watching this who don't know what the vault is. So you want to give us a high level overview of the vault and why <laughs> people should be using it? Yeah, I'm happy to, to talk about vault. So uh, HashiCorp vault is a secrets manager. It's a, it's a secrets manager. But part of that comes down to storing it. Part of it comes down to managing those secrets. And the other bit of that is another piece, which is rotation. Uh, it's very easy to issue an API token and forget that you issued it 30 days ago. Absolutely. You have to, yeah, it's really easy to forget that. And so what Vault will basically do is handle the revocation uh, and the leasing, right, of, of that API token or that secret for however period of time you decide it's a time to live. So you can say, keep it for 30 days. If it hasn't been touched, then revoke it. Uh, you know, so it's got a lot of, a lot of interesting automation underneath, uh, you know, its core engine, but at the very end of the day, it's a nice way to store your secrets and rotate them really dynamically. Oh, I want to ask so many questions. So uh, <laughs> before, before we get to the question that I really want to discuss, and that's here are a bunch of ideas for storing passwords that might look good, but actually awful. Uh, we'll get to that in a second. I wanted to ask, how do, how do I use it? Is it like um, a cloud service? Is it one of the services that I deploy in-prem? How, uh, what is the API? How do I interact with Vault? Because it sounds to me that there are so many... Uh, uh, variations of how do I need to consume my secrets that it's hard to come with a third party of the shelf tool that can answer all those requirements. Yeah. So Vault, you deploy yourself right now. Uh, you will take the open source binary online and you will set up a cluster wherever you desire to set up a cluster. It could be on-prem, mm -hmm. it could be on the cloud, but you would manage it and, and for the most part monitor it yourself. The way that you interface with it can be through three, three ways. You know, you can do it through UI, but, you know, if we're really automating everything, you would maybe do it through API, which is also very, very much available. Uh, and there's also CLI. So there's a combination of the three that organizations will tend to use. They usually tend to do a ton of automation with the API. Um, and there's also kind of kits out there between HashiCorp and the community to help you expedite the deployment and the management of a Vault cluster as well. Uh, we, for one, JFrog, we use Vault in uh, one of our products in, in JFrog pipelines uh, for, for exactly that, for storing secrets uh, for all the, all the CI and CD needs because you need secrets for all everything that you inter okay. interact with. Uh, but why why it's even why it's even an issue i mean we probably can do like i remember using ci servers previously when i just took the username and the password and then put them in uh, environment variables and use those environment variables in the run of my of my ci what's wrong with that yeah i defer to cat on some of the security you know some of the security vector the vectors that would you know would be in a pipeline but part of that, at least what I see is that ephemerality is a very good, good defense uh, against an attack. So if the time to live for a secret is very limited, then you sometimes, for, or for the most part, 
uh, kind of eliminate the blast radius a bit. Um, and so in pipelines, it's easy to maybe inject the username and password, but that still is fairly static uh, in some regards. So unless you're doing automation within the pipeline to revoke that username and password after you're using it, or you have additional automation before that that you've written to say it will only live for the lifetime of that pipeline, you know, someone can still take the username and password and just run with it and do something with it. Um, in the case of Vault, you know, you can say maybe the database credentials are only available for the lifetime of a Kubernetes pod, for example. Um, yeah, that's uh, reducing the amount of time that uh, a secret, a key or whatever exists. Is, uh, it's an important part of like reducing the attack surface of something and like using environment variables or whatever is it's, it's fine realistically, but it, it is something that could potentially be taken advantage of at some point. And you don't really want that information hanging out in like through pipelines indefinitely when you have the option to revoke it quickly, like with vault. Cause like, like why, why, why give the risk? Uh, I don't think we should ever, ever, ever say that anything is unhackable or anything is ever like invulnerable to uh, being taken advantage of, even though like environment variables do feel very safe because it feels like saying, somebody please try. <laughs> so go ahead and take the precaution of uh, putting it, uh, building it in a way that it's automatically revoked after like X amount of time or whatever. That's just basic. Reduce the, reduce the attack service. I, I have a question of that, but before just mentioning the environment's variable stuff, um, I think one of the one of the most dangerous uh, consequences of having uh, environment passwords in environment variables is that today, when uh, almost everything is spun up in containers, um, the the environment variables is actually a file in the, one of the layers of the container and right. so unencrypted, and you could just just see it there. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's a massive uh, glaring security hole. Because you yeah, got to so eventually. Yeah, that's, that's the main reasons why you shouldn't use environment variables, especially for third-party services when the chances are that everything is containerized and what you actually think you're running as a, as a script or as, as, as your Linux operating system is actually run in the container and you, all your environment variables are actually an encrypt, uh, encrypted, unencrypted text file. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, big no on that. Uh, I did want to ask about the rotation of credentials uh, because from what I understand, it requires the, um, the service that you log into uh, also rotate the credentials and accept the credentials that Walt rotates for you. So how does it work? Is this, um, so again, taking, like, for example, you need to log in to Jeffrey Artifactory to download your dependencies or to mm -hmm. upload your artifacts. Uh, if you have, if Walt gives you a new password every two days, Artifactory needs to be aware that passwords are changed every two days. How, mm -hmm. how that works? Yeah, so that's actually really a great parallel to Terraform providers. Just as Terraform providers actually handle the logic of, creating something upstream in a public cloud, for example, right? It handles the API calls, it handles the order of operations. 
there are actually Vault plugins. And the Vault mm -hmm. plugins themselves contain similar automation to handle the rotation uh, and the issuance of new keys. So to a certain degree, you do have to give Vault access to, you know, wherever it is, uh, to JFrog, for example, to make those calls on your behalf. But the idea is that it's locked in Vault, which is Vault itself, rather than something that's issued downstream uh, or something, yeah, something that's issued downstream that's using it. So you can install a series of backends, um, no, sorry, backends, plugins that will actually handle all of the automation. Uh, and if they're not there, you can also develop them yourself. A number of people have contributed their own plugins into the ecosystem. Ooh. I'm a big fan of uh, anything that takes humans out of the equation where like security is concerned. Um, humans are really bad at repetitive tasks, as it turns out. We get uh, distracted and lazy and we, uh, you know, we might screw up and forget to revoke a, and revoke a password or a token or whatever. So I'm, I'm a huge fan of anything that takes people out of the equation on that. We're just not reliable enough for it. Yeah, let me the, too. Let the robot take that. Yeah. I even forget like which API tokens that I get issued somehow. Like I don't, I don't know. I don't remember them. And then I'll just end up reissuing myself them anyway, like, because I just don't remember where I stored them or what it's being used for. So, and then all my pipelines break, but you know, that's the way it works. <laughs> we do what we can. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. I think I got, I think I got the idea. So in order for Vault to work with some third party, a service to rotate the keys. Uh, it actually needs this plugin that knows which APIs to invoke on those third-party service to actually change the password. And once in a while, based on your configuration, it will do the API call. It will refresh the passwords or 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 the keys, and then actually start serving them instead. Yep, that is correct. Nice. Cool. And, and actually, in terms of knowing those passwords and having all this as one centralized um, place, it obviously provides you the convenience and some kind of security, but it also exposes this place as a single, you know, a target of attack. If I hack into Vault, I know everything. How do we, how do we go about that? Yeah, so the important part is uh, access control in Vault. Uh, Vault in itself has a root token, which gives you access to everything, so don't have a root token. Uh, there's, there's a big, um, big write-up of things you should do for Vault in production, and the big one, of course, is don't have a root token, unless you really, really need it, and you can also rotate the root token as long as you have a set of keys, right? So um, there are a couple ways that it's mitigated within Vault, but the, the best practice is to make sure you have access control. Don't let, don't let you know, some user, Vault user have access to every secret. Uh, if possible, mm -hmm. you know, give them access to the minimum number of secrets that they need, or even better, a one-to-one -one relationship with the secret. Um, especially if they're automation, like if they're automation service accounts, most likely they'll maybe need like one or two sets of secrets they're not going to need you know, the broad spectrum of them. Um, and you can actually use some other policies to check whether or not they conform to the, conform to the, you know, the sort of the source. Um, so you can say, all right, I'll only allow someone access to this Postgres slash 
db username, but I won't let them have access to db passwords, something like that. Um, so those are the two simple ways in which it mitigates it. Um, the other interesting one, which I personally like to mention, uh, just because it's really fun, it's a fun analogy, uh, is um, Vault, when you first, when you start it or when you restart it, um, in order to prevent people from basically breaking into Vault, right, you have to decrypt the store. Um, and so in order to decrypt it, there's a set of keys that you get called unsealed keys. Uh, mm -hmm. And they're a bit like the nuclear codes. Um, you have to have like a certain number of them to unseal said vault and to get to the secrets. Yeah. So you distribute them amongst your teams. And then once if vault goes down, for example, because someone's trying to hack into vault uh, or maybe your system isn't that highly available, something goes down and then vault seals itself, basically preventing anybody from extracting the secrets unless you have the combination of keys. Uh, so then you call someone, you're like, do you have the second key? And then they have to enter it. It's this whole thing. It <laughs> is from the Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. You need three of them to get the Master Sword. Like, yeah. That's tight, actually. I know. I've, I actually never heard the Zelda thing. But, you know, actually, I might just use Zelda. I was using the nuclear codes, but, like, oh, actually, the Zelda analogy is even totally better. the spirit stones from Ocarina of Time. <laughs> use that. Sorry for interrupting you, Bruce. I couldn't. <laughs> no, no. I just, I just said that it's cool, and now it's even cooler. So, yeah. <laughs> if I can find a way to cram some fantasy or video game reference in there, I'm going to do it. <laughs> okay, here you go. You just got it. Perfect. Um, okay, I, that that makes sense, and and I think we kind of cracked the mystery of Walt. Uh, let's move to the next one by I would say my personal rating of popularity that you can confirm or not. <laughs> Uh, the next one will be console. I don't, I mean, I can't tell you if it's more or less popular, but we'll go to console because it's, it's also pretty fun. I have a soft spot for console. All right. So what, what, what is console? I, I think it used to be something and now it's something completely different. <laughs> yeah, it's a little confusing. Uh, <laughs> I acknowledge it's a bit confusing. So console, I think is more generally for service networking. Um, and, and it's, it's really interesting because uh, it evolved over the over the years, right? Um, it was, in some ways, it sort of was so powerful, it could do a lot of things, and people were using a lot of interesting things for it. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but, but at its core, what it really solves the problem uh, of is service networking in particular. So if, let's say, you need to discover services, console's really easy to put together to discover and register some of the services you have in your environment. Um, it has a service mesh capability in there. Um, where you can actually control and manage layer seven traffic if you want to, um, you know, and, and more, you know, more differently than that, not more differently, but the other bit of traffic management is denying and allowing traffic. Um, so it also will allow you to deny and allow traffic between services if you've got it configured correctly. Um, and kind of the side thing that uh, it was, a lot of people use it for, is a key value store. So there's in itself, it's a key and a value store. Um, so you can use it to back vault if you want. Um, oh. Yeah. So you can use it. It will encrypt. It will of course encrypt the data, but cool. um, you can actually use it as a backend for vault to, for vault to store that information. So if vault goes down, it can pick up the information from console. Um, the oh. other thing that someone used it for, was like health checking and monitoring, which 
some people do it at mass scale. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. 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 For sure. Uh, we, we had to like look for a solution for that when I was on the the IOT team, because we were mocking up a situation where we were potentially dealing with like thousands of devices at a time. And we needed a way to like know which ones were alive. Uh, it's actually kind of a hard problem to solve. Yeah. So that's, uh, also pretty, pretty neat. Somebody did that with console. Yeah. It's, in, it's really interesting and it's, it's very, it was meant to be lightweight. So the reason why you might've heard it was one use case and then it sort of transformed over time was because, I mean, it's, it's a really, really interesting tool that was built on like very interesting academic research. And uh, so people just, they really enjoy its versatility, but a lot of people use it for service networking. Hmm. Yeah. So what, what I heard my kind of personal journey around it is key value store service discovery and now service mesh mm-hmm. this is yeah. kind of the transformation that a console went in 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 my head at least and um I, the the service mesh thing we just did the podcast a couple of hours ago with andon weiss who really thinks that Service mesh is one of the most important concepts in today's world with microservices and Kubernetes uh, because it kind of uh, allows you to manage the complexity of the microservices by sitting on this orchestrator of uh, who speaks to whom and why. Um, is it is it really the the biggest use case today and how it's different from other service meshes like Istio, for example? So I will say that service mesh is really fascinating um, as, a, as a solution to sort of the microservices problem, but interestingly to kind of edge, edge devices in general. And, um, you know, our traditional network model doesn't work, doesn't fit, right, in either of those architectures. Um, the era of like doing layer three, layer four firewall configuration it doesn't fit that space. It doesn't, it, it just changes too quickly. It changes, I mean, it's the registration of instances um, and where they are is just too much for a firewall or any traditional network device or even a virtual device uh, to keep up with it. So mm-hmm. in some ways, service mesh, I think is, it's a nice solution to the problem. Um, the other bit of it that I think that you know, Istio, for the most part, was uh, really well applied in the Kubernetes space. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of the other problems, that the bigger problems, right, the things that may not be fully solved are outside of the Kubernetes space. And those are like the mainframes. Those might be edge devices that aren't Kubernetes, part of Kubernetes clusters. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the neat part about console, which I personally like using it for, uh, is putting it on these interesting devices that aren't really Kubernetes related um, and allowing them to sort of join the conversation of the mesh, right? So if you have a mesh on Kubernetes, you actually can, with console, you can take some of the other ones that aren't going to be in Kubernetes and join the conversation a bit. So you get a single point of control across all of it. Um, It's useful for like legacy migrations, for example. So if you expect to migrate very slowly from a data center to Kubernetes or to a new architecture, you know, it's neat to use a service mesh to be able to to fine tune some of those parameters for you. So it kind of takes the service mesh out of this Kubernetes niche and applies it to broader broader scope of of devices. Um, 
another interesting use case that uh, goes through my mind now is the edge computing, fog computing, IoT, call it whatever you like. How about those? Yeah, so it's really funny because I, I want to see more of that. I want to see more of like the service mesh examples to, to talk about the problems in that space. Um, you know, some people have used, uh, you know, console and Nomad console, HashiCorp console, and it's, it's orchestrator Nomad to sort of address some of the problems in edge computing. Um, what is, what's really cool, and I, I'm really looking forward to it, is the potential to apply it. Uh, you know, Envoy, I think Envoy has like a mobile proxy now um that that's in development and it'd be really interesting to see how this works on like mobile devices or some of the other um some of the other interesting <laughs> devices that are out there but we have run console on raspberry Pis before and it runs just fine it's a small binary so yeah um, like speaking from experience getting mm -hmm. kubernetes to run on edge devices can be really 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 hard uh so an opportunity for them to be like part of the devices to be part of the network and not necessarily need to like force Kubernetes into it is, uh, I think that's really valuable. Um, we, we did manage to get Kubernetes to run on Raspberry Pis or on like embedded Linux devices, but we had to use K3S to do it. Like it was, it, it is a real pain to get actual Kubernetes involved with the edge. There's just, they're just too low memory. So that's a, that's, I think that's a viable use case for console, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, me too. And, and I hope to see, you know, more people exploring it. And, and we're definitely looking at it. We're just looking at some of the possibilities. Uh, but part of this is like, even even articulating the concept of a service mesh has been very difficult. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's very abstract, for, you know, to tell someone like, okay, a service mesh, what is it? How is it? What is What problem does it solve? Oh, I think it took Anton like 15 minutes to explain it on our previous podcast. So like it is, it's complicated. Like it's, it's an abstraction layer that solves a, like an excessive complexity issue with a really, 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 really large network. But just because it's an abstraction doesn't necessarily mean it's simple. You know, it's still like, it's still a bear. It just makes life way easier. Hey, talking about edge devices and and how um, standard meshes work or or don't work with them, and do we really need to try and squeeze Kubernetes on on them? There is another um, initiative which is an alternative to K uh, K3S, and that's the Linux Foundation Edge Foundation, Linux Foundation Edge Foundation, um, which tries to do what the Cloud Native Foundation did for uh, for Kubernetes and stuff for uh, for edge computing, one of their project is the edge virtualization engine, the Eve project, and that's kind of the alternative. Um, what they're trying to do is um, virtualization and not necessarily containerization of um, of edge devices. One of the interesting startups in 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 this area is uh, Zdeda, uh, and uh, Roman Chapashnik, one of the co-founders. Uh, will be on this podcast um, sometime in the future, I guess in the next couple of weeks. And we will definitely ask him how they manage, what their vision of managing uh, networking and communication in those full computing clusters. And uh, if um, actually console can be one of the solutions and if they play with it, if they have any experience. And obviously we'll be more than happy to connect between you and maybe, you know, have another episode of, 
all of us together talking about networking in folk computing and edge computing. That's yeah, going to be a very... To just have uh, one guest on here. We can, we can chuck a couple on and do a whole panel. Uh, yeah, so that's here just me thinking about what else can be interesting in this area. So, yeah, okay. Um, I guess, um, again, if I need to summarize, simplify everything to one sentence, uh, I would say that console is the way to take uh, mesh concepts that help us battling uh, complexity out of this uh, Kubernetes niche and apply it to both edges, the very kind of legacy and the very... Uh, futuristic uh, edges of our computing world. Yeah, I like uh, that. I might borrow it. <laughs> um, you mentioned yeah, Nomad. You out left and right on things to say. I know, I know. You mentioned Nomad. What, what is Nomad? Nomad is a, uh, is a workload orchestrator. So it is, you know, beyond containers, right? You can use it for raw compute, um, you can use it on a variety of different drivers. So it's not just like a Docker container. You could, someone I think built a Firecracker uh, driver for it as well. So it, it has some extensibility beyond, uh, you know, containers. And so you can use it for workloads that might not run well in containers. So this could be So like wait a second. Workload orchestrator is what Kubernetes is, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So here we have like, okay, it's like Kubernetes, but... Again, not for not only for containers. Correct. That's the, that's the thing. Okay. And and what what can I how does it look like? What can I orchestrate? What people use it for? So the common one that actually works out, a lot of people use Nomad for batching, like for batch mm. jobs that they can't put in containers because the systems themselves are not uh, you know, they're not container amenable systems, gotcha. uh, if that makes sense. So they'll use it for some really heavy uh, batch work where you have to scale up really quickly and then you have to scale down really quickly. Um, you know, Nomad is built basically to scale uh, very rapidly and um, containers or no containers. So that's where at least a good number of people use it a lot. And, and a lot of others use it for, you know, your web apps. They use it for, um, you know, some of the other stuff. Uh, for example, someone actually put it on one of our community, uh, their great team, um, to the point, shout out to them. Uh, they, uh, they created a keyboard wall. So they attached a keyboard, uh, a colorful LED keyboard that they can control um, to Raspberry Pis. And the Raspberry Pis were part of a Nomad cluster. Uh, and they could control and make the keyboard wall dance, you know, with different, you know, choreography to the music. Uh, and light up and flash in different ways. There's a video on that somewhere in YouTube. They, um, uh, they build that for Logitech? I don't know if they built it for Logitech. Uh, I know that the, the poor team, like, actually took apart, disassembled it, and then, like, drove it to Amsterdam last year uh, for HashiConf EU, and then drove it back. <laughs> yeah, it was a big keyboard wall, but it was really awesome. And so, you know, you can... Pretty much put Nomad, it, similar principles to console, similar principles to most of the HashiCorp tools in that it's super lightweight. It's intended to be very lightweight as a binary, mm -hmm. and then you can apply it to different um, operating systems, use it for different things to schedule jobs, however, whatever jobs you desire. How does this scheduling look like? What, what, what is the kind of look and feel of this, of this tool? How do I... 
So it uses a similar, it's a similar configuration language to Terraform. So uh, it all boils down to HashiCorp configuration language, which is that kind of domain specific language. Um, but but that's configuration language um, can be extended to other declarations beyond Terraform. Um, so HashiCorp configuration language, the manif- the schema itself, right, um, generally looks similar to what you would expect with most container or even general or workload orchestrators. What's the name of the job? How many resources do you intend to allocate with it? Uh, you know, what's the underlying driver if it's just a CPU allocation or if it's um, containers? So the schema in itself, you know, you declare it, you apply it to Nomad. Um, there are also, you know, similar to Kubernetes annotations and other metadata. There's also, you know, kind of blue-green. You can do different manipulations of that versioning, et cetera. So it is fairly similar in terms of the, 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 the language of the capability. How do I marry it with, uh, with Kubernetes? I obviously have Kubernetes for my containers. I might want to use a Nomad for, for other stuff. Is there like some kind of a simple integration, unification? Do I need to switch from one to another in some way or I can somehow integrate between those two? So the integration point actually is either you run one on the other or the other on the one. <laughs> So it's a very like meta thing, but you can either run Kubernetes, you can either run Kubernetes on Nomad or run Nomad on Kubernetes. Um, And yeah, it's a little confusing, but uh, the reason why you might want to do one or the other is like, maybe you have an application team or product team that is very Kubernetes, uh, very Kubernetes focused. You can still have the operations and management of the Kubernetes cluster resources with Nomad. Um, you know, and, and therefore you would run Kubernetes on Nomad, um, and then you would have other Nomad declarations for other jobs that are not related to Kubernetes. Or you can run Nomad on Kubernetes for, you know, some, I don't know, for some other application. That one I haven't actually heard, but I have, I have heard people run Kubernetes on Nomad. It's like doable in theory, but you're not sure what the use case is there. Yeah, I'm really not yeah. sure what the use case is. Although like, Kelsey Hightower actually has, like, he has HashiNetis, which is HashiCorp's tools on Kubernetes. So I think he actually has a nomad on Kubernetes, uh, like, tutorial and, and walkthrough. We'll um, have to get him on here and see if he wants to explain, like, why. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I think it's, you know, I think the idea is that maybe you want to be using native you know, HashiCorp tooling, if you want native integrations with console, native integrations with Vault. Not to say Vault and console don't have integrations with Kubernetes, they do. But if you want to maybe have a similar approach and you want to have consistency um, across how you interface with the stack, Nomad and console and Vault have all the first class integrations together. So there's a possibility of someone running Nomad on Kubernetes. It's Kubernetes all the way down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Could just be. It makes sense. Um, tell me, before we um, wrap up, and this is um, more related to our developer relations work, um, I, I guess, uh, I don't know if HashiConf was planned and probably not going to happen now, at least in its physical form. What, what's going on with Hashi events? Where where we 
people now can go if they want to learn more, if they want to, uh, you know, kind of uh, talk to you guys? What, what's going on now? Yeah, so um, we are going HashiConf Digital. Um, if you go to HashiConf.com slash digital, um, it outlines that uh, we've gone digital for uh, for the Australia and for EU conferences. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll still be focused around contributors and community members from uh, those regions who are amazing and we should feature them. Um, and it gives us a lot of great possibilities to actually interact with the community um, I believe we're still going to have training days, so you'll still be able to have the opportunity to train on tools and, and understand what's going on, and hopefully we get some more participation. But both of them have gone digital in this. You don't know what's going to happen. You know, Hopefully HashiConf US happens in October, but at this point, it's hard to say. October. Yeah, no, we, we fingers crossed that by October, everything will, will be back to, to normal again or to what it was before. Yeah, yeah. What about JFrog's conference? Uh, so yeah, we are uh, we are working on uh, on a working on an answer virus <laughs> appropriate response. Uh, hopefully, we will announce soon what's going on with it, uh, and uh, whatever it will be, um, all our team and obviously uh, um, Kat and I will be more than happy to. Um, uh, uh, collaborate with you or Rosemary and doing fun stuff yeah. uh, in whatever format will it be. Uh, I hope this podcast is only the beginning of a wonderful uh, friendship uh, and uh, I hope we'll have an opportunity to do more both in terms of this very podcast as I mentioned I already have a couple of ideas to invite you to more episodes uh, but also stuff like um, maybe webinar uh, because um, the stories of JFrog and Hashi are amazingly aligned. Uh, we kind of uh, integrate in all the right points without stopping, stepping on each other's toes. So there is a lot of uh, a lot of great potential for doing fun stuff together. And uh, hopefully, when we are back on our uh, conferences um, circle, I hope we will have the opportunity to do a couple of joint talks and uh, and. Uh, you know, providing more value with that as well. Yeah, yeah. And if there's anybody, anything that the JFrog community wants to see in terms of specific content, et cetera, let me know. Happy to work on it and we can maybe build something. Yeah, let's let's just collaborate on some stuff. Yeah. I'm sure there's some dope demos we can build together. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, a lot of dope demos. My my head is exploding of all the ideas that I now I have uh, as as a result as a result of this uh, of this conversation um with that rosemary thank you very much for coming to the devops speakeasy podcast thank you thank you for having me it's and, been a pleasure yeah now it's time for twitter ads this is why we're here so uh, where we go to follow you on twitter you can follow me at uh, it's the first letter of the following phrase uh, jack of all trades, master of none, and then there's a zero eight at the end. So it's J O A T M O N zero eight, and uh, that's where you'll find me on Twitter and GitHub. Cool. Uh, we will have it written for everybody who are confused right now in the show notes. So no worry about that. That will be easy. Also, all the Twitter announcement that we did already contain obviously your your Twitter handle, so it's very easy to find you and and follow you on Twitter. Kat, it's your turn now. 
What is your uh, smart Twitter handle? <laughs> My smart Twitter handle is uh, Dixie and then the number three flatline, Dixie three flatline. So far, only one person has uh, noticed what that is from and actually said something about it. So if you know what that is a reference to, let me know and you will get one socially distance appropriate internet high five. Uh, we can think about maybe a price for figuring out I what it is. also possibly give you a t-shirt and some there stickers. There you go. That's we have new t-shirts coming out soon. And I can yeah, give you- They're already out. We would be spraying them all over in the conferences, but no. Social distancing. From, and you'll get a t-shirt. That's for sure. And my boring Twitter handle is at jbaruch, J-B-A-R-U-C-H. So um, with that, thank you very much, Rosemary. Thank you very much, Kat. And uh, we'll see you in the next episode somewhere early next week. Monday. Monday. Yeah, Monday. We have Sasha Rosenbaum from GitHub uh, coming up on Monday, which is pretty exciting and cool. So join that as well. And um, at JFrog, this is where, uh, sorry, JFrog YouTube channel, this is where it's live. At DevOps Speakeasy, that's where it's tweeted. And we're working on uploading those podcasts to every possible podcast platform in the world. Um, and this is coming as well. Thank you very much again. And bye-bye. Okay. Stop recording.